Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Welcome to Neuropathways. In today's episode, we address the crossroads of conditions that are too often related and still regarded with uncertainty and suspicion that being suicide and neurologic disorders. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Tatiana Falcone join me for today's conversation. Dr. Falcone is a psychiatrist with Cleveland Clinic's Department of Psychiatry and Psychology and Epilepsy Center. She co-edited a textbook published in 2018 called Suicide Prevention, A Practical Guide for the Practitioner, with a chapter devoted to children and adults with epilepsy. Tatiana, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you. So our first question, what is the prevalence of suicide in those living with neurological conditions? The prevalence of suicide in patients with neurological conditions might be a little higher than in the general population. When you think about that, um, some of the explanations is because a lot of the patients with neurologic conditions have higher incidence of mood disorders. And when your mood disorder progresses, then the incidence of suicide increase. So depending on the study that you look at and what scale they're using is somewhere around 25 to 40%. And it is different from different conditions like uh, for patients uh, with epilepsy, some studies have reported up to 50%. For patients after a stroke, there are studies that reported up to 22%. So it's different according to how soon after the event happened, the patient is reporting the suicidal thoughts. So the question that uh, begs to answer is why the propensity for suicide in those living with neurological conditions? What is it about the condition? So there's multiple reasons. So from the environmental factors, living with a chronic condition that affects your brain, right, can seriously impact your everyday life, right? Can impact your ability to sometimes sustain a job, your ability to maintain some of the regular things that you do in your quality of life might impact your everyday life, but also the brain. When you have an illness that is affecting your brain, it might be producing the neurologic symptoms that the patient might be having, but it also, depression comes from the brain, and whenever certain areas of the brain might be affected, then might be higher incidence of depression, right? The longer that someone has depression without being treated, then the more probability that they will have suicidal thoughts. And one of the things that we see in patients with neurologic conditions is sometimes people feel like, okay, maybe when my epilepsy is getting better, then I'm going to get better from these mood issues. Or maybe when I start feeling better from like the movement issues that I'm having, then the mood issues are going to get better. And what we know it happens is like they continue to progress. And unless you target both the neurologic condition, but also the mood disorder is not going to get better. And the longer that you have it, the more probability that you have suicidal thoughts and attempt suicide later on. So COVID has been very difficult for everyone. Anecdotally, or if there's data out there, uh, how was 2020 for this problem? Is it more? Is it less? Has it stayed the same? 
I can tell you about our data in children, right? So in the last year, the pediatric department has been tracking a scale that we do in adolescence. It's called the PHQA adolescence, nine questions. And in the last year, they did 26,000 screenings uh, via my chart. And we track the incidence of suicidal thoughts by month. And we found that, and this is not only neurologic conditions, but all the kids in the PITS clinic, we saw that especially around the time when we were having the stay-at-home order, like we have the scores of the kids by month. And we saw that April was actually the highest month where kids were reporting suicidal thoughts. And then later on in the year, we saw that in September, the thoughts went back again. So if you think we see some correlation with several factors, I think one might be the stay-at-home order, inability to do your regular activities, the social peace, like the inability to connect with your friends. In kids, sports are huge. Inability to do your regular extracurricular activities like theater, right? All the clubs that the kids have after school. And right now, we are in the process of looking at the issue of suicidal thoughts in kids with epilepsy during COVID, but we don't have the numbers yet. I can tell you that when we look at the numbers of how many kids with epilepsy who are never had a psychiatric disorder diagnosed before, we ask the question about, are you having any thoughts about suicide? Like the incidence is really high. And before we were targeting only those kids who have depression, but there were some guidelines by the American Epilepsy Society that said that we should be screening everybody. And so we started doing that and we found like the incidence in this population, like kids with epilepsy was high and surprisingly high for people who were not reporting depressive symptoms. And yet the other important point is they are not gonna tell you unless you ask them. So let's just pivot for a second and talk about your role in support of patients with neurological conditions. What approach do you take for screening for suicide? What we decided to do a couple of years ago was that um, psychiatric conditions were common in patients with epilepsy. So we added several scales to a regular armamentarium of scales that we send in the regular basis when they come to see the epileptologist. So we had two scales from depression, one that it was two questions, the PHQ-2, and one that it was 16 questions, the CESDC. So if the patient was positive in the PHQ-2, then they received the full 16 questions for the CESDC. If the patient was positive for the CESDC, then they received the ASK, that is a four questions. And we were stopping and doing the ask only in um, psychiatry, but then we saw that this is a huge need. And there's, we're seeing more than 200 patients a year on the PITS Epilepsy Center. And it's really hard for me to see everybody, right? So what we did is like, this could be done at the general level, like the epileptologist can be sending this, and this scale is gonna track what patients are having these thoughts. So whenever the uh, epileptologist is opening the chart and is seeing that the patient said yes to his questions, then they have to assess in that moment 
to this patient is currently having these thoughts right now, or is it more like depression, right? And if we feel like the patient needs any extra attention, then they can contact the social worker and they can come and do a further evaluation. Or if the patient is saying, I have a plan, then we are sending the patients to emergency room. So you think, oh, we're sending a lot of patients. No, it was really interesting to see that from everybody that we saw, let's say after you ask the second question, like, is this something that you're thinking right now? This is something that you thought six months ago that takes 50% of the sample out. Like most of the people say, yeah, six months ago, I was feeling really bad, but now things are a little better. So we can sometimes just schedule a follow-up appointment and see how they are. But um, in the study that we presented at American Epilepsy Society, we ended up sending like around 13 people out of 100 to the emergency room. So I can tell you that in neuro-oncology, we started doing PHQ-9s on our patients. And if they scored over a certain level or they checked suicidality, the ninth question, then they automatically saw the social worker. And then our social worker would then be the portal to either see a psychiatrist or to go to the emergency department uh, at that point in time. So that's how we handled it. But for those of us medical professionals who may be less comfortable addressing a patient about suicide, any tips that you can share? Yeah, so your patient trusts you, right? They trust you with their care. They are coming to see you because they believe that you can help them. It's really hard for the patient to bring this up. They are not going to bring it up unless you ask them. So I think the most important thing is knowing that you can ask a couple of simple, easy questions, right? And if the patient say yes to any of them, then we just have to follow up, right? If they said, yes, I'm having these thoughts, then we have to be a little more specific. We want to say, okay, is this like something that happened a month ago or has it happened in the last week? If they said, yeah, I've been having these thoughts in the last week, then we have to say, okay, let us know how much time of your day you're spending on these thoughts. And we know people who are spending more than five hours a day on these thoughts are at higher risk. So try to track how much time. And then the intensity is also important. So if one is like, you're very unlikely to do anything like this, and five is like you thought about it and you almost did it yesterday, where are you on that scale right now from one to five? And I think that gives you a really good idea where the patient is. How do you address patients with varying degrees of suicide risk and what tools do you leverage to manage them? We ask this question to everybody, and then we assess how severe the suicidal ideation is. Then when we think the suicidal ideation might be severe, some people might have chronic severe suicidal ideation. So then we have to see what is the risk today. And then we ask like, when you had these thoughts, do you have a plan, right? And if they said that yes, they had a plan, what is their plan? So how much farther, like did they look on the internet, which one of the medications that they're taking are the more lethal ones? Did they look on like what other methods people use to hurt themselves, right? Or did they took any steps? Like some people say, I put the medications in the palm of my hand and then I decide against it, right? So when we are at that point that the patient has aborted attempts, I think we know the risk is higher. And the last question is, Right now, 
what is the likelihood that you're going to act on those thoughts? If the patient said, yes, like I have been really thinking about it and I don't know if I can be safe, then I think you know that this patient might need to go to a hospital. So what role do medications and therapeutics have in the treatment of suicide? So there are the effective treatment for uh, mood disorders. And we know that when your mood disorder gets better, then the suicidal thoughts get better. So, and the medications are effective, but they might take up to four to six weeks. So the therapy is key because you are giving the patient hope and also tools to manage those suicidal thoughts. So when they come back, they know what to do. So are there any medications that would treat mood disorder that could negatively affect epilepsy that you would like to comment on? Yeah, in epilepsy, there's one medication that we don't use because we know it can increase your probability to have seizures. So we avoid bupropion in patients uh, with epilepsy. And what about your use of ketamine? Are you using ketamine uh, for suicide ideation? So it's funny you ask, like we are just about to start doing a study that is going to be four years where we're going to be evaluating the use of ketamine in patients after they attempted suicide. So there are 156 studies about this. Uh, From those, there are four studies in adolescents. In the adolescents, none of them have evaluated the effect on the suicidality. So this is going to be like one of the first studies who's going to evaluate the effectiveness of ketamine for the treatment of suicidal thoughts in youth. So, Tatiana, I'm a uh, neuro-oncologist, so I look after brain tumor patients, and a lot of our patients have seizures. Uh, As you know, the FDA came out with a warning that uh, patients that take anti-epileptic medications have a small but increased risk of suicide thought or behavior. And one of the concerns associated with this is that if patients heard this, that they would not want to take their seizure medication. And obviously, it's very important for us to have patients take their seizure medications So when patients ask me about this conflict, uh, how should I answer that for them? So um, I will say thank you so much for bringing uh, this to me. I think it's very important that you are aware of anything that is happening, anything new effect when you're taking any medication. What happened uh, with those initial studies was when they look at the rate of suicidal thoughts in patients with epilepsy, they did not control for like the incidence or the severity of depression. And we know that patients with epilepsy might have a higher incidence of depression. So that might be the reason why when you have these symptoms for a longer time and you don't treat it, patients might develop suicidal thoughts. But nevertheless, it is true that some medications can have uh, effects on your mood. So if you notice that after you recently started medication, your mood is changing or you are getting more labile or irritable, this is a very important thought to communicate to your doctor because there are things that we can do to help you. Any differences in managing the pediatric population versus the adult population for suicidal ideation? We did a study recently that was published on epilepsy in December looking at the conversations that adults with epilepsy have about suicide 
versus children with epilepsy. And one of the things that we saw is like there are two different stages in the adult population. We saw a lot of like hopelessness and like the impact on their ability to work and things was one of like the journeys to get there to having suicidal thoughts. In kids, it was like the unknown and like most of their comments related to suicide end up being on trying to understand how people were coping with their epilepsy. So they were asking for help and they were trying to understand what other people do to make it better. So I think the most, one of the most important things to address in youth is like sometimes parents trying to protect their kids are not including them in the regular conversations about their care. And it's very important because when you don't, they get more worried about what's happening. So for kids, I would say, including them in the conversations about their care at their level so they understand what's happening and giving them kind of like a timeline so they understand what's happening. And in adults, we saw the hopelessness was something major. So trying to make sure that every time that someone leaves your office after an appointment, they have hope. So you don't want to finish your appointment when someone is crying and feeling really bad about what's going on right now. You have to try to make sure that they understand what other possibilities do we have and where do we go from here that can be helpful. Well, Tatiana, I want to thank you for joining me today. This has been a very insightful conversation and I appreciate all your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.